Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Today's scripture reading is from Hebrews eleven twenty through 22. This is the word of God. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, who at the end of his life made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this wonderful day that we have, that we can gather together as believers as we come trusting in your word and your promises to us. And as we study this passage today, we ask only that you would help each of us to become stronger in our faith, building us up in our faith, and that we may be each other encouraging each other to do the same. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I remember growing up when I was a kid, many things that I was afraid about. Many things that concern me. Now, one thing that all of us, I'm sure, was afraid of and that worried us was the school test we had the next morning. And I remember sometimes sitting there thinking that if only God had created the universe one day earlier, that this moment in my life would have by now passed and it would all be behind me. And it never occurred to me that had I studied for the test a little harder, that this concern would not be weighing on me so deeply. But there are other things that I grew up actually a little bit more concerned about. And I grew up in the 1970s, and one thing that I was certain would happen to me as I grew older is I would one day be called and sent to Vietnam. Now, Vietnam ended when I was about 11 years old, so I never did go. But growing up, I saw on TV every night the jungles and the fighting going on there, and I thought I'm going to one day spend my time in Vietnam. And I wasn't so much afraid of the guns and bullets and bombs as I was about the snakes that are in Vietnam. I didn't like that idea. But then, of course... The Yom Kippur War started in the Middle East, and I thought, well, now that Vietnam's passed us, this Middle East is going to heat up, and now I'm going to have to worry about being the desert. And so that began my concern. Another thing that concerned me growing up was that one day I would be killed being shot as I walked to school. Now, it wasn't because of the school shootings we see today. My friends and I, if we had some crosswords or something against another person, we just simply fought in the schoolyard. We took care of it there and then, and it became no problem. And so we had these words, we'd say, I choose you, and that meant that you and I are going to go out and duke it out, but we put it all behind us and it was fine. So I wasn't concerned about being shot by a school friend. My concern was more about being strafed by the Red Baron. Now, there used to be, out of Littleton, a Centennial Airport, a red biplane that flew out of there. And I'm telling you the truth, we could see it flying over our neighborhoods, and we knew that that was a Red Baron. He, of course, shot 80 uh, Allied planes down during the First World War. At the time, we didn't have access to the Internet, so I didn't know that he actually died in 1918. Had I known that, it may not have been a concern. But I was concerned about this Red Baron strafing us as we walked to school each day. And then another thing concerned me, and this was a concern in the 70s that seems now to have passed, and that was that we would navigate a world full of quicksand. And so I thought we'd have to walk through the world watching sure to make sure we don't fall into quicksand. And I think I got that from Gilligan's Island because every year or so somebody fell into quicksand and nearly died that way. So many 
of our childhood concerns, in hindsight, we look back and we realize that they really weren't anything to be afraid of. They really weren't anything of great concern, but they were to us at that moment. Now, if I'd asked my parents about these concerns, I'm sure they would have told me, don't worry about that, that's not a real problem. But I'm also sure my parents had other concerns and worries about us as children that we would not have understood at the time. I think the one thing all of us as parents know is that you don't really know what fear is until you've had kids. And then there's a different kind of fear and concern that we have in our lives. And what we do when we have fear is we often worry about it. Now, how many of you worry about things? I know all of us at different times worry about things. And I think there's an inverse relationship between worry on the one hand and faith on the other. Now, I know we have to have concern about the future, concern about things, but worry often becomes our biggest emotional drain in our life. Now, do you worry about the past or do you worry about the future? You worry about the future, don't you? We don't worry about the past. We have regrets about the past. We have hurts from the past. We have things from the past we don't like to think about, but we don't worry about it anymore. Worry is a future-oriented sort of emotion. It's looking to the future, but so also is faith. We don't have faith about things that happened in the past. Those are done. Faith, as we saw, as Bentley talked about a few weeks ago, is a confidence in what God has done for us and promised to us in the future. And so just as worry is future-oriented, so also is faith. Faith is being called to look forward to the future, trusting that the promises that God has made to us will come about and will come to pass. Now, we've spent a lot of time in the book of Hebrews. The first 10 chapters has laid this very deep groundwork for what happens when we get to chapter 11. The first 10 chapters lays a theological understanding of the promises that God has made to us and the way that God has gone about fulfilling those promises and the benefits we have when we accept and believe in those promises. So when you come to chapter 11, it should be second hat to say, now I know what chapter 11 is all about. Now, if you skip the first 10 chapters and just jump into chapter 11, and there's a lot of sermon series done by pastors around the country, and they start in chapter 11 and do only that, you miss all the reasons and all the basis and the theological understanding that we need to have so that we can live a life of faith. So when you come to chapter 11 without all of that, it becomes much more a sense of our having to have confidence in ourselves and our own self-effort. Now, in chapter 11, we've seen a number of great uh, characters from the Old Testament go by. We know the story of uh, Abel and, and Cain. We know the story of Noah. Uh, last week, Nate talked about Abraham, the great story of Abraham, the first of the great, what we call, patriarchs of the Old Testament. Today, we come to the story of the three that came after Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Now, in the first verses of chapter 11, there's more details given to us about why they had faith, what it was that made them a people of great faith. When we come to these other three characters, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, as you saw Linda read, it went by quite quickly, and there's not much said about it. And so the details become a little bit thinner. And I think the point uh, here is to say that what the preacher of Hebrews wants us to do now is in our own minds, as he would have expected the first century uh, hearers and readers to do, to begin to think about the stories we know from the book of Genesis. He doesn't say much about each of these three characters, but he says just enough to point to passages and ideas from Genesis. And so we need to rehearse some of those old stories from Genesis 
to understand the point that he's making here in Hebrews chapter 11. And so verse 20, 21, and 22, each uh, character has a verse, but not much is said. So what we need to do is kind of draw back into the Old Testament and bring those stories forward so we have a grasp of them. So if you have your outline, you can follow along briefly. But the first one we see is Isaac. And as uh, uh, we read Isaac in chapter uh, 11, verse 20, by faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. Now, I know many of you know your Old Testament or you remember from Sunday school the stories of Jacob and Esau. But let me just rehearse a few of these for us. If we went back to chapter uh, 25 of Genesis, we would have the first story of this, uh, the first point that we need to make. And that is this, that God chooses Jacob over Esau before they're born. Now, the story is told in Genesis chapter 25, beginning verse 21 and following, that uh, uh, Isaac uh, was uh, married to Rebekah. And she was barren. And so they weren't having children, couldn't have children. And so Isaac prayed that Rebekah might have children. And then God answers that prayer, and Rebekah then conceives, finds out then she's with twins. Now, they're fraternal twins. They're not maternal twins. They're fraternal twins, and so they're not identical, as we'll see. But as she's beginning to uh, grow in, in her pregnancy, she senses that there's something wrong going on. And the story is told that they're basically in there wrestling with each other, and that would be the story of their life. But in there she says, Lord, what is going on in here? And so we read in chapter 25, verse 21, that God said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. And so here we see God makes this promise that the younger will rule over the older. The older will serve the younger. And so now we need to wait to see what happens. And we see what happens in, verse, in chapter 27. Uh, well, what we have born after that is, of course, Esau born first. He's born sort of what it says is red and hairy. And then Jacob comes out right after him holding his heels. So they're born very quickly. And so we see the story of Esau, who's the oldest by just a moment, who's red and hairy and grows up to be that kind of a man, a man sort of a man. And then after him is Jacob. Jacob is born. We're told that he's of smooth skin, that he liked to dwell in tents. And so while Esau was out hunting and doing all of that sort of thing, it looks like uh, uh, Jacob was uh, tending to himself, the household, and, and living that sort of a way. So this contrast is drawn between the two of them. Now, many, many, many years pass, and we come to chapter 27. And chapter 27 begins this long story of how Isaac gives what he believes to be the blessing to Esau, and instead it goes to Jacob. And all of chapter 27 tells a story, but let's just kind of summarize it here quickly. We know the story. At some point in his life, Isaac becomes old. It tells us he becomes blind. He can't see well, dim of seeing and eyesight. And so he's got a favorite, we know, and that's Esau. He loved Esau. He loved the way that Esau lived his life, the man sort of life that Esau lived. And so that was his favorite. And perhaps because Esau was oldest, Jacob, or Isaac at this point believed that the blessing should go to him. Now, the blessing we're talking about is not simply something of a, uh, you know, a, a child dedication sort of a thing. First of all, these are adult men. Secondly, we're talking about is something closer to the idea of primogeniture. You know, the, the way that all of the estate goes to the oldest son so that the estate can be kept together. And so now it looks as though uh, Isaac is going to confer this blessing on Esau. Now remember we just read where some years earlier God came to Rebekah and said, the blessing is going to go to Jacob, the younger. 
not to Esau, his older brother. And so Rebekah would have known this. And so the scene begins with Isaac inviting Esau in. And he says to Esau, I'm getting old. I can't see well. I'm getting tired. I know I'm going to die soon. And so what I want you to do is this. Go out and hunt for me and find me a great piece of, of game, a wild meat, and bring it to me. Prepare it the best you can. And we're going to sit down in private and eat together. And then after we do that, I'm going to give you the blessing. In other words, all of the blessings that God promised to Abraham, now to me, Isaac, will now go to you, Esau. And so Esau heads out to find his game. At the same time, you can see Rebecca standing in the kitchen, listening or poking through the, peak of the keyhole, and she hears this. And so she says, oh, we can't let this happen. So she goes and tells Jacob, Jacob, your father's about to give the blessing to your brother Esau. We've got to do something about this. And so she says, what you need to do is go out, get two goats from the herd, bring the best you can find in, bring them to me, I'll prepare them, and then you can go in and get the blessing yourself while your brother Esau is out hunting. Now, Jacob's first thought is, well, he's going to know that I'm not Esau because Esau is a hairy man and I'm a smooth skin. And, Rebecca, and, and, and if he finds out I'm trying to trick him, then he'll curse me. So Rebecca says, don't worry about that. If there's a curse, I'll take the punishment. You just do that. And so Jacob decides to go ahead and follow this plan of Rebecca to deceive Isaac. So he goes and gets the goats. He comes back in. She prepares them. They take the skins from the animal, use those to mask the uh, smooth arms of, of uh, Jacob, and he goes in to deceive his father. Now think at this moment, what's motivating each of the people in the story? When we think about the hall of faith and the people in it, we often think that they're the greatest of moral character, that made great sacrifices. And, and I know the kids are downstairs studying people in the hall of faith. They're studying more contemporary characters, people that have illustrated that in their life, made great sacrifices. And I know great effort was made to pick people that actually lived a good life and fulfilled those promises. And so they didn't pick anybody who was currently alive because you don't want somebody then to surprise you by falling into something you didn't expect, and then we've got their picture on the wall downstairs as a hero. And so they're all gone and dead now. But in the Old Testament, maybe the preacher of Hebrews didn't have a choice of such great people. He had to choose who was actually there. And this family is never portrayed as being this great paragon of virtue and morality and, and a functional family. This is a dysfunctional family. And so now we see Isaac going against what God said, and that's to give the promise to Jacob. He's now going to give it to his favorite son Esau instead. Rebekah, who knew that, devised a plan to kind of intercept and bring Jacob into this blessing. But she doesn't go and confront Isaac and say, you can't do that. You know God said that, there's, that it goes to Jacob. Instead, she decide, decides to lie and deceive her way through this. And so she convinces her son Jacob to be a liar and deceiver also. So this whole plan is hatched. And, and so we see the dysfunction in this family. Now, Jacob goes in, brings the well-prepared goats. And Isaac, he walks in and says, here I am. And Isaac hears his voice and says, who is there? And Jacob answers, and I'm sure he didn't use his own voice. He tried to mask it, so he sounded more like Esau. So he'd say something like, well, it is I, your son Esau. <laughs> and Isaac hears and says, well, you don't sound exactly like it, but come here close and let me smell you and let me feel you. And so he feels the goat hair in his arms, and he smells the clothes that he's wearing because his mother had put Esau's clothes on. You can smell a man of the field, you know. And so he smells and he says, okay, I guess you're Esau. 
And so he then confers this blessing. He eats the meal, confers the blessing. And as soon as that's done, Jacob gets out of the room. And then this scene shows us Esau coming in right on the heels of this story. Esau comes in and he says, Father, it is I, your son Esau. Jacob, or Isaac then, is confronted with a problem. He just conferred the blessing on someone else. And he figures out that must have been Jacob. Because I know his mother and his, my, my son are deceivers. And immediately it says, in chapter 27, verse 33, they begin to shake in terror and fear. And your first thought might be to what? Why was he shaking in fear like that? And the answer we see is undoubtedly because at that moment, he knew that he had been found out. He had decided to make a plan where he would confer the blessing on Esau, but instead it actually went where it was supposed to go all along, and that was to Jacob. So Jacob got the blessing. Now Esau figures out what's happened here. Isaac tells him, your brother stole it from you. And, and Esau, in distress, says, can you not bless me, Father? Can you not give me my blessing? And, and then at this moment, Isaac, I think, really understood for the first time, it really was God's plan all along the blessing would go to Jacob, that the, the line down through the ages would go Abraham, Isaac, and then Jacob, and not Esau. And so Isaac tells Esau, no, it can't go to you. It went to Jacob, and that's where it has to go, because that's where it was supposed to be all along. Well, Esau begged for something else, and Isaac gave him a secondary sort of blessing, and there is this rift between the brothers that would last for decades, and eventually they may reconcile. But Jacob would have to flee from his home so he wouldn't be killed by his brother Esau for what had happened. And so now we see the writer of Hebrews, the preacher of Hebrews, coming along and saying that now Jacob, let me read this again in verse 20, by faith Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. And I think the point the preacher of Hebrews is making is that in the end, not through most of his life, there was problems throughout their lives, but in the end, at that moment, Isaac knew that the true blessing belonged first to Jacob and only secondarily to his son Esau. And so in this, undoubtedly, Isaac is worrying about his children, worrying about their future, his sons, what their futures may be. But at this point, for the first time, he understands that he has to follow what was God's plan all along. And so we see this plan worked out. And the plan happens. Well, the second thing we see in Hebrews chapter uh, 11, verse 21, is now Jacob becomes the sinner. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. So now we see a scene where Jacob, many, many years later, is now the one who's facing death. And it's often at these points of facing death that we have to make life's greatest decisions. And so he understands now his death is imminent. And so he decides now to do something. And so he's going to bless the sons of Joseph. Now, quickly, you remember the story of Joseph. He was the 11th son of Jacob. Uh, there were 10 older brothers and one after him. But Joseph, who was a favorite son of Jacob, uh, was uh, kidnapped by his brothers because of his coat and taken and sent down to Egypt in a caravan. And so Jacob spent many years of his life believing that his son Joseph had been killed because his brothers took his coat, tore it up, and bloodied it up, and then took it to his father and said, look, your son Joseph is dead. He's been killed by the animals, the lions and bears. He's gone. And this was the brother's way of getting rid of Joseph. 
Joseph, of course, goes down to Egypt. You know the story there. We covered it just a few months ago when we studied Genesis. He grows in Egypt, becomes prominent because of his morality, because of his character. Other problems arose, but that's who Joseph was. And so Joseph is eventually at a high point of his life when a famine strikes the land, and the people of Cana, of the land of Israel, had to go down to Egypt for food. Uh, they go down there, and that's where Jacob finds and meets his son Joseph. He's alive all along. And he sees his son Joseph. Now Joseph uh, has two sons that Jacob finds out about. Their names are Manasseh and Ephraim. And if we uh, go over to uh, Genesis chapter 48 now, and I'm just going to hit a few ideas over here. In chapter 48, verses 1 to 20 tell the long story of how Jacob now blessed the two sons of Joseph. So get the picture here. We've got Ten sons of Jacob already, that's ten of the tribes. Joseph and Benjamin, those should be the twelve, we might think, but Joseph is not a tribe, right? You never heard of the tribe of Joseph, but you have heard of the tribes of Manasseh and Ephraim, I hope, but the tribes of Manasseh and Ephraim. Well, this is why Jacob says to Joseph, I want to adopt your two oldest sons and make them mine. They're now going to be part of the twelve tribes of Israel. And so they're made that. And so Jacob now adopts Manasseh and Ephraim. But now in his old age, he's looking and he says, it's time now for me to bless Joseph and his sons. So he says to Joseph, bring your sons to me that I may bless them. Now Manasseh was older and Ephraim was younger. All right. When the blessing would come, they would come before Jacob and Jacob would reach out his right hand of primary blessing and place it on the oldest son and his left hand of secondary blessing and place it on the younger. And that way the blessing would be conferred in order. And so Joseph knows, well, if his right hand is over here, I need to bring Manasseh in my left arm. So he's facing and bring Ephraim in my right arm. And so that's how Joseph presents his two sons. But rather than... Jacob reaching out like this, he crosses his arms and instead brings a primary blessing on Ephraim and the secondary on Manasseh. Now, Joseph sees this happening and says, whoa, whoa, dad, that's not how you do it. And if we see this blessing coming down in uh, verse, uh, 40, uh, chapter 48, verse 15, and he blessed Joseph and said, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked the God who has been my shepherd all my long life to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys, and in them let my name be carried on, and the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. In verse 17, when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, he displeased him, and he took his father's hand to remove it and to fix the situation. And he says, Dad, you did it wrong. But Jacob, now knowing that it was God's plan that Ephraim would be primary between the two, says, this is the way it's supposed to be. By you, Israel, pronounce blessings, saying, God makes you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. So the blessing has happened this way. At this point in Jacob's long life, he now understands that there's an order to God's plan. Now, Jacob... I mean, the tragedy of Jacob's life in many ways to, to have a son that dies in such a horrible way, at least believing that, is a father who spent much of his life in pain, in suffering, never forgetting the day he was told that his son Joseph had been killed. He now finds him alive. But at this point in Jacob's 
a life of deceit, of treachery in many ways. We see now the preacher of Hebrews saying that at this moment he's demonstrating that faith because now he's trusting in the plan of God, the plan that would have Ephraim primary over Manasseh. And so again, verse 21 of Hebrews 11, By faith Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph. And that's the story. He blessed them in this way, passing the blessing to Ephraim as God had told him to. Then the story continues again in, in Hebrews eleven twenty one, Bowing in worship over the head of his staff. Jacob bows in worship over the head of his staff. And this comes from a story, in, again, in Genesis there are, for Jacob anyway, three deathbed scenes. And it was a kind of a slow death, but at several different moments in Jacob's life, he has these moments where he says, I'm going to die soon. There's things I need to do. And so in chapter 47, we see the first of the deathbed scenes. In, in verse 29, uh, we read, And when it came time, and when the time came, drew near that Israel, who was Jacob, must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, Put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. That's Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, who were buried at, at the family grave in, in Canaan. Don't let me be buried in Egypt, he says. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. And Joseph said, I will do as you have said. And he said, swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel, or Jacob, bowed himself upon the head of his bed. And so Jacob now asks only that when he dies, that Joseph allow his body be taken back to the land of Canaan, where his fathers and grandfathers are buried. And so that's his final moment, trusting in God's plan, asking only that he be allowed to go back and be buried there. And so we see in Jacob's life, a life where perhaps he hadn't always been as faithful and as honest and as we might have hoped and expected, but instead we see a man who, at the end of his life, did trust in what God had said and allowed God's plan to be that which was worked out in his own life and for his own children and for his own grandchildren and their future. And so we see the story now of Jacob. Now finally we come to Hebrews 11, verse 22. And we have here the story of Joseph. In verse 22, by faith, Joseph at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. All right, so we have a third man who's about to die. And again, the great decisions of life are often made and finally executed as our death approaches. And so Joseph has his moment in Hebrews chapter 11. And the story told here goes back into Genesis chapter 50. And so we'll just touch two verses over there. But before we do, we have to remember the great story of Genesis up until this point. And it began in Genesis 12 and then 15 and 17 when God said to Abraham, as Nate reminds us last week, that there's a great nation and promise coming to you, Abraham, and that you will bear, bear children, and that through you and your descendants forever, the nations of the world will be blessed. And that's what we call the Abrahamic covenant. God made a promise, a covenant to Abraham. And now through the lives of Isaac, and then through Jacob, and now through Joseph, and his descendants on throughout, we see this promise coming to fulfillment. That's the driving narrative of Genesis. That's a story we have to follow along here. But we come now to the last moments of Joseph's life. And if you're at Genesis chapter 50, verse 24, we read, 
at the end of Joseph's life as he's about to die. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. In Joseph's waning moments of life, he told his brothers, I'm not going to go much longer. And by now we know that the nation of Israel will become captives in Egypt. Remember, they were saved from famine in Canaan when they went down to Egypt to be fed, so that's where God wanted them to be. At the same time, they would become slaves in Egypt, and for 400 years they would serve as slaves in Egypt, and all of their descendants would be slaves in Egypt. But Joseph now, at this moment, invokes that Abrahamic covenant. Again, look at verse 24. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land of Egypt to the land that he promised to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. He knew that that promise would one day come to pass. And so Joseph, in these last moments, already speaks of the Exodus, which would be in the future. Joseph is trusting in the promise God made. Now, the Exodus becomes, even today for the Jewish people, their central controlling narrative, the, the thought that really drives much of their thinking. It's a promise that God makes and, and God delivers that people. They, they look to the Exodus, and so there's the Passover that's celebrated each year. As the Jews look to those moments, the Passover is a time when God protected them. There's those moments as they remember today, even coming out of the land of Egypt, crossing the Sea of Reeds through the Sinai Desert and making it to the Promised Land. That's their thought. That's what Joseph's relying on. And so he says here, remember that. Now look at verse 25. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. Now, what Joseph says here is, when the time comes at the time of the Exodus in the distant future, I want then my bones to be removed to Canaan, removed back to the promised land to what will become Israel. Now, if you remember Jacob, Jacob wanted his bones to be taken there immediately upon his death so that he could be buried with his fathers and grandfathers. Joseph now, trusting in God's promise of the Exodus, says, you know what? My bones can stay here with you until that promise is fulfilled and there is an exodus and we're taken back to the promised land. That's the faith that Joseph had in the promises that God had made about the future. And so in each of these families, we see in these different ways, these promises being made. Joseph then dies knowing that one day the directions he gave concerning his bones would be fulfilled and he too would then find his way back to the promised land. Now, all of us can, can look through these passages and imagine the psychology and the difficulty that each of these characters went through in their life. We have Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph, each in their own ways, living their lives with the struggles that are in many ways different from ours, but in so many other ways, very similar to the difficulties we have. In the same way, we all worry about our kids. We're worried about our future, our grandkids. What, what does the future hold for them? I mean, as you get older, you figure out, you know, I've kind of made most of my life through this world, and I think I'll get out of it unscathed by too much, but you worry about your kids. And again, there's nothing that strikes fear into the hearts of parents as much as the, the, the danger their kids face. I remember some years ago, 
Uh, I was, uh, Deanne and I, and our two oldest kids, lived in California, in Los Angeles. And I was uh, working out there. Uh, and we would send our two oldest kids, uh, my son and daughter, uh, Kristen, to Denver, where they would spend time during the summers with their cousins and all. So they were able to spend a lot of time with their family here. And so we'd fly them out. And, and then one day, uh, it was time for them to come back to L.A. And so they were put on a plane. Now, they're about nine and six years old put on a plane, United Airlines, and United was going to fly them back to Los Angeles where I would go to LAX, the airport, and pick them up. And so the time is coming, and I'm going to make sure I'm at the airport early. Now remember, this is a day when you could go to the gate and pick up people. A uh, long time passed, but you could go to the gate. And so I drove to LAX to pick up my two uh, kids. And as I'm driving down the 405 freeway, my car overheats in the heat of the summer day, which may have been a hundred plus degrees. It was a hot day. My car overheats and it breaks down, so I have to pull off the 405 into some sort of industrial district about five miles from LAX. So I park my car and it's steaming out. Now remember, this was a time when we didn't have cell phones. Only really rich people had car phones, which were wired into the console, but there weren't cell phones. So I had no phone to call anybody. And I had nobody to call. There was no Uber or Lyft drivers at the time, and LA doesn't have taxis really. And so I was in a jam. And about five miles from LAX, I began hoofing it to the airport in the heat of the summer day. I've got to get to the airport before the plane lands and my kids disembark from that plane because if they get off that plane, they're going to wander through the airport. I got a problem. And so I am through the heat trying to get down to LAX, and it's a longer ways than I thought. I'm running and jogging and weeding and trying to go, okay, no water. I get to the airport perhaps 45 minutes, an hour after the plane had landed, and as I'm still trying to make my way down there, I'm thinking, oh, they're going to be on milk bottles now, and I'm going to be on the TV as a delinquent father who lets his kids wander at LAX. I, literally, this is the most scary moment in my life up to this point. So I finally get uh, there, afraid for my kids. I couldn't even call Deanne to tell her because I had no phone, so she had no idea. She was with our youngest son, Timothy, who was just born. And so I finally get there, and I'm, now what do you do if you're at the airport? How do you find them? So I go to the United Desk, and I find there's a place where they kind of kept the kids. Oh, thank God, I thought. And so I go and find them, and they, they turn the kids over to me. And I was so glad they didn't you know, arrest me or have me charged with any crimes or indicted for neglect. But now I've got the two kids with no car. I've got to get home again. And so I finally figured out, okay, there's a shuttle that drives from LAX to Van Nuys Airport, so we'll at least use that to get halfway home. And so I got on the Van Nuys shuttle to go up to Van Nuys, and then from there we hopped the city bus in Sherman, Drive, or Sherman Way, and, and we, so I got these two kids with suitcases, a, a summer's worth of suitcases and stuff that I'm hauling around. And I get home finally, and it's the most relieved moment of my life. That sort of fear and that sort of relief, I don't know if I've really had again. But I finally got them home. And, and that's the fear you have, losing your kids, the danger to your kids. I, all sorts of things going through my mind. And I know all of us worry about our kids, about our, the futures, about the futures of our grandchildren, what's going on. Those are real concerns. And I think all of us have to think about how do we then deal with that? What's the proper way for us to handle these sort of concerns? And so here's a few things I want to just give, leave you with. First, remember, as you're worrying about the dangers that your kids face, Face. Remember, simply raise them with faith because in the end, God is the only one that can save their souls. We want to make sure that of all the dangers they face, that the one thing we know they never face is a judgment without knowing who Christ was. 
And so the one thing we want to do is make sure they're raised knowing who God is. So God is the only one that can save them. Secondly, to believe, truly believe, that Christ is more attractive than anything the world has to offer. If we really believe that, we might be less concerned about all the other dangers we see out there. Show them the beauty of what Christ has done for us about the life that he lived on our behalf and what that means to us. Make that a beautiful attraction in their life so that the other things that we fear, the other temptations they may face become far less appealing, far less interesting. And I think sometimes, not always, but sometimes, when people aren't raised and don't think about the greatness of what Christ has done for us, when it becomes simply a, a simple Bible story that they learn from VeggieTales or something and not a real part of their life, they may think these other temptations that lead to, to pleasures and joys of this life are more attractive. And so secondly, we want to make Christ more attractive than anything. Third, rather than trying to please people by the way we raise our kids, seek to build character that's lasting in their life. So we can find a way of raising our kids so that in their own lives, they're raised and growing, knowing that true moral biblical character matters. Now, I know that we often as parents take blame more for the bad things that our kids do and less you know, credit for the good things they do. Uh, we want to take credit for all their good, but we know that it wasn't all us, it was them. But what we want to do is to make sure that we build moral character in them that matters. Fourth, remember that worldly achievement doesn't provide eternal hope. We want our kids to be successful. We give them educations. We want them to succeed and have a place to live and have all the things that we need in this life. But rather than focusing on worldly achievement, make sure instead that we give them eternal hope, that they have what really matters. And some kids may grow up to be uh, very wealthy and presidents of companies and success in life. But be less concerned about those moments in life and more concerned about the fact that they're actually the right kind of person raised in a church, knowing who God is and what Christ has done for them. That has greater eternal reward on their behalf. And then finally, remember, you can't control the future anyway. As we see Isaac in some ways and Jacob in other ways, trying to control and manipulate the future, remember that God is really the one in control. And so the, the life we lead is really a great plan where God is, is, is running his plan. And so our life is something like being on a small boat in the ocean where we paddle to do our part, but really what's guiding and moving our life is the plan of God, which is more like the currents of the ocean which drive us. And so let's ride the plan that God has and not fight against it. Take his path, his plan, and make our way through that. Now I know as parents, we fear that our kids go through suffering. We don't want our kids to suffer through the pains of this life. You know, as parents, uh, we've all had experiences where kids grow, go through things, and I know some of you have kids with uh, physical difficulties and disabilities, mental disabilities, problems in life, and it pains parents to go through that. Uh, it pains parents to see children who die. I had a cousin who died just uh, a few weeks ago. He was uh, about 45 years old. Um, his mother had to watch his son die. He was a Aurora, Aurora police officer, but he died uh, of a heart attack at age 45. The pain of a parent losing a child is unimaginable. And that's one time when I never say, I know what you're going through, I'm sorry. You can't do that. 
But when our kids go through suffering, there's a few things we can keep in mind here. First of all, when they suffer, understand that this may be what God is doing to teach them how to endure life. The life is not easy, and even though we as parents would want to give our kids all the benefits and all the ease of life so that they can traverse through it without any obstacles, instead we see often that those difficulties they face give them a strength to endure greater difficulties in the future. And if you as a parent can help cultivate that endurance in your child's life, it'll go a long way to helping them endure what they will inevitably face. Secondly, we have to learn to, to teach them to trust in God's faithfulness. As our kids suffer, as they go through these difficulties, show them that they too can trust in God's faithfulness, that God is faithful. And even God in his plan takes all of us through these difficult times in life, but we know that God can carry us through. And then again, perhaps the most important lesson we can teach kids who go through difficulties, through suffering, through problems in life, is that sin is more dangerous than pain. We often fear the pain they may go through. We often fear that in some way the hurt they go through is going to be a real problem for them. But remember that sin is more dangerous than the pain they go through. And, and, and so there's a solution for their sin, right? And that's what we've talked about all along. It's what Christ has done for us. That's what Hebrews has been about all along. It's a promise that Christ has provided a way for our escape from sin. That Christ has provided a means of redemption so that we don't have to fear the consequences of our sin. Sin is dangerous. It's more dangerous than the quicksand. It's more dangerous than the Red Baron. It's dangerous. It's real. But there's a way through it, and that's through Christ. And instead of worrying about the pain they go through, that's not dangerous. We all go through pain. Sin is what's dangerous. And so the writer of Hebrews, this preacher, has given us this message that we should all take to heart and know that there is a solution. There are things we should be concerned about. There are things we are afraid about. And there's no way as parents we cannot be concerned about what our kids go through. We do. But we can't worry about it in that sense. Instead, we have to commit these plans to God and trust them to God and to do simply our part, which is to show them that there is a solution that we have in what Christ has done for us. Let's stand as we dismiss in prayer. Our fathers, we consider these lessons from the lives of Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. We see in their lives so many of the same tendencies and habits and, and problems that we face, that we in, cause ourselves. We know that we are deceitful. We know that we are often weak. But we now know that we too can live with faith and trust. And so we ask, Lord, that you would give each of us uh, that strength of faith to know that you have a plan, that you have a purpose. And even if we don't understand it, we know that there's a purpose you have. So help us rely and trust on that. Give us that strength. At the same time, we commit to you, our children, our grandchildren, their futures, knowing that that's out of our control, but it's not out of your control. So we ask that you will protect them and bless them and grow them in your faith, in what Christ has done for them. For it is in his name we pray. Amen.